Hello, I'm Loxan Harley, and you're listening to another episode of the Migration and Diaspora podcast, a show about all things migration. I'm joined today by Hannah Tignani to talk about a prize, which is a tool for screening vulnerable populations with the potential to unmask situations of forced labor and human trafficking. So a little bit about Hannah. Hannah is currently a principal research fellow at the United Nations University Institute in Macau, where she leads the Migrant Tech Research Project. Now, since 2016, she has led a multidisciplinary team, innovating and inventing ICTs to support proactive and consistent screening of workers in situations of labour, exploitation and human trafficking. She has over 15 years academic and practical experience in the area of mobile computing, ICT for development and human computer interaction. During this time, she has undertaken applied computing research, conceptualising, designing, developing and rolling out systems for underserved areas in Africa and Southeast Asia. She has authored more than 90 peer-reviewed publications based on her research, publishing in both academic and policy circles. She's been pretty busy, and Hannah's work has been presented at or showcased by the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Trafficking and several other international forums. And as you'll learn, although somewhat obscured by her Australian accent, Hannah has grown up and worked in a number of different countries and considers herself part of the Welsh and UK diasporas. So listen out as I quiz her on her grasp of the Welsh language at the beginning of the interview. Now, our interview focuses on Hannah's experiences utilising technology to benefit migrants, especially those finding themselves in exploitative conditions. It's really worth listening to if you, like me, are curious about the different technological applications that can benefit migrants and the steps to take to develop such applications. Key takeaways on my side, at least, are to keep things user and solutions focused as opposed to tech focused, focusing resources on working with target users to develop and pilot your tech solution. Anyway, all this will become apparent during our interview. So without further ado, I'd like to thank you for listening. And as always, I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, Hannah, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. How are you going? I am going well, as, as uh, you Australians say. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really great to have you on. And uh, I'd like to just first start with your migration background. So tell, tell us a bit about that, because I know, I know you've been to a few places and especially you've grown up in a pretty international way. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I'm one of those people that when you ask where my home is, it's a bit of a long story. <laughs> yeah. So I'm born in Wales. And we lived there for a year and then we moved to Hong Kong um, and I lived in Hong Kong for 10 years, um, just under 10 years. And then because the Hong Kong handover was coming um, as a foreigner, we were advised it's a good idea to look at alternate places to live. Um, and we moved to Australia and I did most of my high school um, and my university in Australia. Um, in North Queensland and then down to Adelaide in South Australia. Um, and then I did part of my PhD with the University of Washington in Seattle um, and then also University of Canterbury in Christchurch. So a little bit of time in both those places. Um, and then I also, when I finished my PhD, I decided I wanted to get into ICT for development. So I moved to South Africa. Um, I lived there for like, how long? I guess 
let me say 10 years because I can't do my maths very quickly. Um, <laughs> yeah, just about 10 years out of there. I started as a postdoc researcher at a small university called um, Rhodes University. And then I went into lecturing and an associate professor um, role there. And then um, my husband and I, we saw this opportunity to move to Macau. And um, we thought it was a nice break from um, being a professor where you have to do research as well as teaching. And here at Macau, we're doing just research. Um, so we moved here in 2016 and we've been here since. What a great variety of places you've lived in, especially uh, across the English-speaking world, it seems. Yeah, I think that seems to be the, the pattern. Yeah, and well, it also seems, I, I'm also glad to hear that you're, you're sort of part of the Hong Kong diaspora, uh, like I am, and, yeah. and you're part of the British and Welsh diasporas. Uh, so I'm, yeah. I'm not going to kind of push you on the extent to which you embrace those roots, but do you remember any Welsh language? Only Barda. <laughs> what does that mean? It means good morning, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, okay, I, I don't know. You're the, you're the Welsh person. Okay. Uh, and just FYI, uh, Wales released their diaspora engagement action plan uh, just this hmm. past week. So I should check yeah, it out. They're coming after you. <laughs> and just uh, and so now you're at the United Nations University. And I don't know how to put this. Are, are you the, the CEO of APRISE or... <laughs> part of the founding com committee or how does um yeah tell us a bit about your current positions i guess the apprise is a research project um and it's a collaboration between um unu united nations university in macau and um, an ngo out of hong kong called the mekong club so i'm the project lead and and i don't we don't have a ceo or anything <laughs> fancy like that not yet <laughs> Just, yeah not yet <laughs> Okay, fair enough. And the United Nations University, I mean, uh, uh, I think a lot of people have, have heard of it and have heard of it in relation to migration as well. You know, people, I know they have um, their UNU merit um, mm -hmm. in, in Maastricht in, in, in the Netherlands, um, you know, with Melissa Sie Dr. Melissa Siegel doing some good work there. So uh, could you, I guess, give us a, give us a snapshot of, of what, what the UNU is and, and what it does overall in the field of migration and trafficking. Sure. And um, so I'm glad you've actually heard of UNU because most people we speak to have not heard of United Nations University before. And um, for those who haven't, it's a research think tank of the United Nations um, and it's supposed to do policy impactful research on behalf of member states and UN bodies. And um, so each of the institutes, I think there are like 11 around the world, but each has a different theme. So as you mentioned, Merit um, looks at migration and economics. Um, and there's, um, so UNICPR, the Center for Policy Research hosted in New York. And then our friends at IRGH, the um, Global Health in um, KL in Malaysia. And, the, and then ASIA in Macau, we look at ICTs and sustainable development. Um, so each of the um, different institutes has, as I said, a different focus, but together we work in some interesting way. So um, you and you and Macau is part of the migration network, um, and that includes researchers from Merit as 
well as Chris in Belgium and then some people in Canada. Um, and I think IAGH is also part of this um, network as well. Um, so as migration and the, um, the problems faced by migrants is very different. Um, it takes these different perspectives working together to come up with um, interesting solutions. That moves us on nicely to, you know, to talk a bit more about a prize. Am I pronouncing that correctly, by the way? Yeah, no, it's no, like a okay. prize, like a prizing you of. Yeah, for those who, well, are just listening to this, so that's app like, you know, an, an application and then rise uh, mm -hmm. as in to rise up. So a prize, yeah. uh, tell us about that. What is a prize? You know, what does it seek to do? How does it work? Okay, um, so we started a prize in 2016. Um, uh, when I came here to work at UNU, my research director at the time, um, Mike Best, he said that I could start any research project I wanted as long as it was around ICT. Um, oh, okay. That's I know. Some <laughs> of course, of course um, in collaboration with him, we had some strategizing to see um, where my interest and where he thought the direction of the um, institute were going. And so from this, I was I've always been interested in looking at um, exploitation and how technology can support people in exploitative working situations. And when you look at the numbers of people in situations of forced labor and human trafficking, like the most recent estimates say 24.9 million people in situations of forced labor. Um, and then if you see how many people have uh, helped each year, um, I think last year they were saying like 100,000 people um, were helped and successfully exited these exploitative conditions. And um, like 100,000 out of 24.9 million, really, it doesn't make a dent. Um, and so what this said to me was that our current techniques for helping people exit um, exploitative situations really could need some support. Um, and as a computer scientist, I thought, is there a role for digital technology to support those who are in the field already doing the screening? So I met, uh, I went to Thailand um, and I met up with um, stakeholders, say NGOs, um, police officers, different intergovernmental organizations, people to IOM, ILO, um, and then also survivors of exploitation in shelters to understand what, what problems they face in victim identification um, and what identification looks like to them um, and if they thought that there was a role for technology to support them. So everyone talks about these three steps. So the first step is um, initial screening, which happens in the field when you first um, come into contact with um, potential victims. And that's really when you assess, like do triaging of cases. Does this, does this person want help? Do they need help? Is there something I can, I can help them with? And then after that, you kind of open up a case and you start collecting evidence and then the case goes to the courts normally. So the second and third step really seemed like um, they were very controlled um, and I didn't know how much um, impact we could have with that. So I focused on the initial screening phase of victim identification. Um, and so we started talking to the frontline responders and saying, well, in this initial screening stage, um, how, what problems do you face? And overwhelmingly everybody, regardless of sector of work that they were in, um, they talked about problems with communication as everyone speaks different languages. 
um, problems with training because the um, practices of exploitation change by sector and over time. Um, problems with privacy because initial screening often happens in the field and in front of um, potentially in front of the exploiter um, and a lack of trust in, in the whole system. Um, but for me, the interesting part that people mentioned again in every different sector was um, the, the role of um, translators. Um, that translators, they um, can be bribed <laughs> actually, um, or just not um, take, I don't know, not uh, translate people accurately. Let's just say that. Um, and so together we did some brainstorming and we came up the, with the idea that we can make a system um, where we have lists of, of these common indicators of exploitation. So what are the current practices of exploitation? Um, we get that list and we translate it into different languages. And then we have a way of asking people privately um, about their situation of work. So that kind of overcomes the communication, the training um, and the, the privacy um, concerns that people had. Um, and then so over a period of a year, um, we went back every um, month or two months. So I'd make it a prototype. We would test it with the different people, especially um, the NGOs in the field who are doing outreach activities, as well as um, people in the um, shelters who had been previously exploited. So it was this really, um, uh, so we call it a, a cyclic way of um, evaluating. So we'd go and we'd test something, they would give us feedback, we would tweak it, and then we'd go back and test it again until we got to um, what a prize is now. Um, so with a prize, we have sector-specific um, lists of questions because um, people exploit people differently in different sectors of work. Um, and then um, we released in 2018, and then again, um, end of 2018, we made a system for um, private auditors and supply chains. Okay, and I mean, there's, I just have a lot of questions here, but just first of all, yeah. I mean, it's amazing what you've done. That's, that's what I'd like to say first. You could be working in Silicon Valley uh, for, for Facebook, Google, et cetera. And, you, and the <laughs> fact that you decided to pursue this path, I think is, is very admirable. And there's clearly quite a need for it. What I like as well is that you've done the hard work of really talking to those who work in the sector, uh, who work in, in um, serving victims to find out what is, what is needed. And then you've built something that seems like it responds very closely to their needs. I wanted to ask about how the evaluation has gone, you know, what kind of feedback you received and then how you tweaked it, or is that, is it very much tweaking on the tech end or yeah, tell us a bit about that process. So there's, there's different kinds of tweaking. Um, so my area of research and my background is in human computer interaction. So studying the way people interact with computers. Um, and so we could have some kinds of very small and what might be really boring um, studies, um, well boring by the people, I find them interesting, um, around things like how would somebody who doesn't speak English, how can I communicate with them and tell them to, select their language from a list. Um, and that goes on to, so that's, that kind of informed our language um, selection um, screen and the process and, and what kind of translations would we need to have to help people to kind of nudge them to 
select a flag, for example, for, from that part. Um, and then what kind of information do we need to give in an intro video? Knowing we don't want it to be um, too long, but also we need people to understand who this random person is who gave them a phone and set of headphones and what the purpose of um, the interview is and to demonstrate how the interface works and to ask for consent all in like one or two minutes. Um, so it can be small kinds of um, evaluations that we've done throughout say that first year period. And then after that, um, we went out um, to the different workers who are out in, um, in the field and we asked them, how does this support you? Um, would you use this if someone, if you were in a vulnerable situation? Um, would, would there be any changes that you'd suggest? And just trying to understand from the worker's perspective, if they would even trust this in the first place and what differences or what changes could we make to help them? Um, and then the other side is always the frontline responders side. So from the, so the NGO or the police officer or the labor inspector's perspective, what do they need for this tool to kind of meet their needs as well? Okay. So that kind of thing. Often people talk about, well, I need it to export to this. And um, one of the big considerations we had there, um, a number of the different NGOs wanted um, to be able to take a photo of, of people mm. um, and kind of correlate it with their, their responses. Um, but with a prize, we don't store any personally identifiable information. So this was one of those big design decisions. We even had like a consultation with, I think around 50 different people where we discussed this to say, what are the privacy um, implications of doing this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, now that, you, and now that you've done all this hard work of iterating and improving and, and tweaking, you know, what, what, are, what is the path towards fully rolling this out? Um, so it's fully rolled out in um, the audit sector. So we work with a number of multinational corporations who use a prize in their own um, audits, social compliance audits of factories within their supply chains. In which um, countries uh, is are they already using it? So right now, I, I don't know if you know how supply chains work, but um, factories are all over the show, but mostly in Asia Pacific area. Yeah. Um, we have some people testing what we're calling our COVID edition <laughs> of a prize, <laughs> um, which lets us do a prize remotely where um, uh, the auditors aren't actually able to travel. Um, but again, we work closely with, in this case, a number of different multinational corporations who were the ones who approached us and said, um, I think it was probably in March, they were like, okay, guys, we have a problem. We still need to do our audits, but we can't get out there. Um, or sometimes we can get out there, but now we want new questions where we look at um, kind of like social distancing and health and sanitation and all these kind of um, different factors. Mm. It's promising to see that multinationals are taking the initiative to do that. Is that driven by the, this kind of sense of responsibility or is it driven by legislative changes, you know, in, in Australia and the UK, you know, have introduced their modern slavery acts to try and clean up their supply chains? A bit has to be in response to these laws because that is some external pressure. We work with a, a bunch of really great um, corporations though who seem to be internally motivated. So they're, for example, the ones who chase us and say, we need help to address this problem. 
And so it's a, a bunch of different factors. It's also where our collaboration with um, the Mekong Club comes in. Um, because so we may bring the, we as in UNU, may bring the research rigor and technical skills, um, but they bring the connections to businesses. Um, and so they have a business alliance where they work with businesses to help them to build their capacity to do a number of things, including, including social compliance audits in this case. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's where the strengths of a collaboration really come in. Yeah, fantastic. And, and also, how easily does the APPRISE model translate to different geographies and sectors? So APPRISE was made with translating to different geography sectors um, as one of the key um, kind of key decisions behind the design. So um, when I, if I have a question list, for example, and I now know the um, companies is going to open up um, some factories or um, start doing audits in a country, choose a random country, Myanmar, um, and then they'll say, okay, I actually need to now have that same question list translated into Burmese, Mon, Shan, and Karim. Um, and then so we can get it translated, the translation verified, and then we upload them to the system. And the next time the um, frontline responder, in this case, the auditor logs into their phone, um, the new translations will be pushed to their phone. So we have the way, a way of adding um, languages, but also adding questions on the fly. So maybe you have an existing list. Um, let's think of our COVID list. Um, that kind of, we have a, a large list of questions for manufacturing, which consists of 40 questions. So we got that cut it in half and chose 20 of those. And I did five new questions all about COVID related issues. Um, and then we kind of formed them into a new list and gave access to that list to um, certain organizations. So now when they log onto their phone, um, it will download all of the new translations and have um, multiple lists that they can choose from to use in their order. Fantastic. So a prize, a prize can be used anywhere and by anyone, well, by any uh, one in, who's screening for these cases um, around the world. Also, just just as a side note, I mean, I, I work a lot on trafficking as well, and mm -hmm. it's it can be quite a harrowing topic. Yeah, you're you're one of the few people I can speak to about trafficking, and and still have a smile on my face. You know. Like, uh, <laughs> I often think I smile too much. Well, you can either smile or cry, but let's go for smile for now. Yeah, exactly. Definitely the better option. I wanted to move on as well to talking a bit about technology in general, because most of the people I interact with, you know, working in the field of migration, they come from a research background or a project management background, international development background. And, and I include myself in this, you know, we're not particularly tech savvy. So with that in mind, you know, what, what other technological solutions have you explored? Have you heard of that seek to benefit migrants? So there's so many out there, hey? There's quite a lot of these hotline and helpline things um, with grievance mechanisms. Um, and I think they're all great because we need to make sure we have every opportunity for a migrant worker to ask for help if they need it. Um, so, yeah, that's one whole kind of set of tools that exist out there. There well, are other it, ones that try and, oh, sorry. No, if I can jump in there quickly, because I, I didn't know you were going to say that, but oh. well, I, no, I thought, I thought you <laughs> um, might say that. 
uh, and, <laughs> and that's something that I've been playing on my mind and I wanted to run this thought by you and it might it might okay. just be it'd be crazy but so I've seen these different apps as well where where you can let's say in, when, if we're talking about trafficking you can re- report you can report cases of trafficking and, and, and stuff like that. And as a, as a migrant, you can access various services. When are these apps useful, would you say? When are they useful and how can they be useful? And what I mean by that is that sometimes it seems to me, at least from my position of not being particularly tech savvy, but it seems to me that sometimes apps are rolled out because it's a kind of sexy thing to do, you know, to, to use tech. And sometimes I feel that the use case isn't always thought through. So for instance, I don't know, if you are a victim of trafficking, I would have imagined a lot lot of the issues in trafficking are about people not knowing when they're being trafficked Mm -hmm. or people not knowing the the signs. So will they have an app? Are they really going to have downloaded an app before being trafficked that allows them to report trafficking or passers-by who witness trafficking? Are they going to notice the signs and then report via an app. I don't know. That's that's yeah. probably a bit of an extreme example, but I feel some apps that are rolled out by, especially by the international development community, sometimes don't necessarily have the eye that I feel you have on the specific use cases and and so on. Yeah. So there are different approaches in any rollout of any technology. And so um, we talk about technology focused or, or problem focused. If I go out and say, oh, I have, I'm really good at building AI systems. So I'm going to go out there, look around and see if I can think of somewhere where I could apply my AI system. It's going to be the same for any system, drones, AI, blockchain, any of these, you know, the buzzwords that we all like to talk about and we know we can get funding for. Um, (laughs) If we go for the tech focus, we call it um, often a white elephant. Like it's great, it works for the pilot study when you're there like, I don't know, mummying everything, making sure every everybody's okay. But as soon as you leave, it falls to the ground because it doesn't actually solve the problem um, taking into consideration the context. Um, and it's you haven't maybe built the capacity to use it properly. Um, if we take the opposite, which is a problem-driven um, solution, which is what we did, we went out into the field and we said, what problems do you have? And we did all these crazy brainstorming sessions with um, the different um, stakeholders to say, okay, so these are your problems. How do you think you could use technology to solve them? People came up with some crazy ideas that I would never want to do myself, like they were asking for a portable lie detector that they could use on each other to see who's lying and things. That was a problem they felt that they faced. Is um, that is that technologically that, uh, possible, by the way? <laughs> well, I'm not quite sure. I'm sure <laughs> if, if you had people who were in, in that was the area of expertise, I don't know. Because yeah, um, I can think of like, quite a few use cases for that. But uh, yeah, yeah anyway. there would be some really cool. But maybe, you know, lie detectors don't work anyway. I know yeah. a number of people who've told me that they can teach you how to get um, to pass a lie detection test. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of a long way of, of saying that let's not take a tech-centric um, approach. Let's do a problem-centric approach. The other thing that you mentioned, um, and it kind of drove our approach, is um, talking about, so you have a migrant worker who's in the field um, and and they've been exploited. 
do they feel like they have the agency to make a change by themselves? To um, and, and there are some people who are really brave and they really will do it. Um, but in our initial um, needs assessment in the field, we found that people were saying they probably wouldn't and they might not have a mobile phone if they were being exploited because often the exploiter takes away their phone. Mm -hmm. Or if we're thinking of um, one of the big sectors we worked in is fishing in Thailand. So in fishing boats, I probably don't have signal <laughs> and I might not have somewhere to charge my phone. And people don't take phones on their boats because they get wet and then they stop working. And um, so all of these factors for us led us to think maybe actually we're not trying to help a worker to um, overcome all of these obstacles that are in their way and, um, and kind of seek help on their own. Um, sometimes this works. And what we've seen is say NGOs who do a whole heap of outreach and they don't have this problem with trust because people know them, people see them at the docks, they um, see them in their, their neighborhoods, they see them at like the local noodle shop um, and they know they're someone who they can trust. Um, I think those approaches and maybe if it's hotline for, for these kind of groups, they work really well because there is no trust barrier. It's just about trying to be at the right time um, and getting the other person there at the right time so you can talk to them. When we um, did our initial screening, uh, after our initial consultations in the field, um, we um, were talking to some NGOs and they were saying that they had um, hotlines and they also had this problem that a number of times they, someone had called them, they all realized that the person's in a vulnerable situation, but then they can't locate them. Um, and then it doesn't help anybody because now the worker themselves knows they've been exploited and they shouldn't be treated this way. Um, and the NGO um, staff member knows there's someone out there and they can't do anything about it. Um, and they were almost like in tears talking about these situations. Um, and so for me, that told me, I don't, want to, I, I don't want to develop technology that could kind of push this further, you know? Yeah. I want to only work with people when they're standing face to face when there are people who already um, do assessments of labor conditions and know what to do afterwards. Because even if I have this app on my phone and I find someone that's also there in a vulnerable situation, I wouldn't know what to do next. Um, but if you work with say these frontline responders, so NGOs, police, labor inspectors, all these guys, they have standard operating procedure for how to help people. Yeah. Very well said. Hannah and I'm now pretty glad that I launched off into that little tirade <laughs> rant against what what I now know to term the tech centric approach. Um, yes. And and yeah, it's very clear that you've you've gone for the problem focused approach. And just very quickly, are there any other specific um, apps or technological innovations that you would single out as as being very um, demonstrative of the problem focused approach that you folks are taking? Um, yes, yeah, so another um, part of, if we think of your migration journey, there's recruitment and then there's work. Um, if someone has been exploited, um, they often go to a shelter. Um, and then after that, they have to be reintegrated either into a new, a new area or into their home, um, their home country. Um, and part of the problem that they face 
is in reintegration and access to jobs. Um, so we have been working with a group in Philippines who have a social enterprise where they hire um, survivors of, of, of sexual exploitation um, and in particular online sexual exploitation of children. Um, and what they do that's very different from other groups um, is um, that they try and teach um, tech, tech skills. Um, one of the big problems is that in shelters, people are often taught handicraft skills. So I don't know, like basket weaving and sticking shelves onto things to decorate them and making soap, that's the other um, big skill people are taught. Um, and while these are, are really great, um, there's a very small call for, for these kind of handicraft skills and your market can be flooded to start with and they don't make enough money which then leaves the um, survivor in an even more precarious situation because they have a job but don't necessarily um, earn enough to live. So they can be more vulnerable to repeat exploitation. Um, so this group um, with their social um, enterprise, um, they teach tech skills and um, they teach Photoshop um, and video editing. And some people, they um, do things like um, data analysis, online um, virtual assistants and things like that. Um, and so we work with them to look at um, the value of meaningful work in reintegration, post-trafficking and exploitation. Um, so one of the tools that we've been working with them on is developed by UCSF, University of California in San Francisco. Um, it's, it's called Neuroscape. So, bit of a long story, um, but uh, Neuroscape, what it does is um, it's got some tools where you can look at um, what's called executive functioning. Um, people who have PTSD, which is often the case with survivors, um, often have impaired executive functioning. And so this tool helps people to develop their executive function, which means like your um, attention, being able to switch between tasks, your working memory and things like that. Um, and then you can, so you can use the tool to develop these things, but also measure how much they have developed over time. So this is a bit of a more out there kind of connection, but it's one yeah. of the more interesting um, uses of technology that I've seen in this um, migrant community. Very cool. And while well, we can perhaps find a, uh... A web link to that to more information Absolutely. on that and then we can include that in the show notes um yeah. i wanted to ask as well you know a lot of people listening to this are probably inspired now to to start their own app or to find their own technical <laughs> solution to a problem that they're seeing in the field or perhaps to put a cynical spin on it perhaps some are like oh great we could get donor funding for an app what, 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 what do you do <laughs> so you know what would you say to those listening who might have an idea about how to use technology um, you know be it an app or, or, or otherwise to solve a problem that they've identified but who don't have the technical abilities themselves to actually uh, do it, what would the process be? Um, so first of all, my step one would be to um, make sure you're in, in touch and working together with people from your target audience. Um, because instead of, we say we want to design with rather than design for. Mm. Um, and Very so- well if we look at designing um, 
or user experience and things like that, we can say that you can start with anything. You could start with a piece of paper and draw a picture of a phone and draw what the system is going to do. Um, and in working with people, um, we talk about having um, different types of prototypes. So if I think of Afias, we started um, after having a series of interviews, I got out PowerPoint and I, I drew a picture of a phone and I drew buttons. <laughs> and then I said, okay, so if this is what we were gonna do, um, how would how would it work? And together we kind of developed this low fidelity prototype, we would say, um, just by having links on a PowerPoint thing. Um, and so you can easily change a PowerPoint slide compared to um, the difficulty of changing an app. So together with the target audience, you kind of make these low fidelity prototypes until you understand really what your idea is going to be and some of the considerations that you might need to make. Um, and you can get quite far with these really lo-fi kind of, of design tools. Um, a good thing with doing lo-fi prototyping is that um, you're not as attached to it if things are wrong. Um, if it only took you, what, like a minute or two minutes to draw a picture, you're much more happy to change things um, in response to feedback from your target demographic than you would be if it took two weeks to code that thing. Um, so I think you can get a good way just to demonstrate um, like proof of concept of, of what you want to do um, with these kind of lo-fi kind of tools. Um, and then if um, the people who you're talking to have things like Adobe Creative Suite, they have some really interesting um, tools like XD, which allow you to make your lo-fi prototype a bit more high um, fidelity, um, but still not by making any, um, any code, just by drawing links between things. So these are things that when, ordinary people can, can use? If you can use a mouse and a keyboard, then you can, you can do it. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would say low fidelity prototyping and then get to a stage where you can do something more um, and then connect to people who can help you with that. Okay. And always think about the, the, the user experience, the target audience. Absolutely. Very good advice. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. Well, I mean, Hannah, I'd really love to talk more about this as I, I think I feel I find I say this at the end of every podcast episode, but I'm so lucky to have this chance to speak to so many interesting people like yourself. So, you know, thank you very much for your work. And how can people connect with you and find out more about your work? I'm also conscious that you folks, that you and, and, and your colleagues at UNU and Macau are doing a lot of research work as well, which we haven't touched on. So, you know, how can people connect mm. with you and find out more about your work? You can find me at um, LinkedIn and send me a message there and I'm happy to chat. And also on Twitter, we have um, account the prize solutions and I'll probably send that um, links to you and you can put it on the page. Um, and then also we have a website, so I'll send that details to you as well. Yeah, yeah, I know. I've, I've been, I've navigated the website and it um, it's very, it's very nice. And uh, uh, what's the word kind of? clean minimalist uh, yeah. yeah uh so so yeah definitely recommend um to listeners to to look out for that in the show well it's a prize dot solutions right yeah a prize dot solutions and also i did i did check it out on the google play store and i think that would be mm. 
the natural reaction of a lot of listeners to do that. But uh, what I've discovered is, uh, you, you know, you need a login, right, to actually yeah do do so, anything. So um, <laughs> one of the things with the prize is that um, the questions we don't just share them with everybody, um, because we know that um, one of the concerns of people in the field is that people will be coached on how to respond to questions, um, and so. Um, if organizations are interested, we're very interested to um, discuss providing access um, to try out the prize and the prize audit, but we don't really just make it a free-for-all. And um, yeah. there's some intelligence behind it that we want to, to make sure remains quite private. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, and just a final question, which I should have asked a lot earlier, but, but I, has only just come to me now. And feel free to also just say none of your business and then I'll just edit this <laughs> bit out. But, you know, how, what is the, the the sustainability aspect of this? You know, what, how is it going to be funded in the long term? So there's the two parts of prize and a prize audit. Um, behind it all is one code base. You might be getting technical here, but um, the code base itself um, was developed with funding from United Nations University. Um, so it's going to be made public. Um, it's going to be released open source. Um, and so that people can use it and do whatever they want with it. Um, but for um, kind of support with it, rather than making your own instance of a prize, um, we have a prize audit where we work with companies and they pay um, for support with it. Again, the tool itself is is free, but if they need help making um, question lists and um, user management, things like that, that takes time and it takes the body um, to help them. So a prize audit, we um, have charges for organizations to use. A prize, right now we're actually open to, um, to collaborating with different groups. So we have some countries where we're working with police officers um, to support them to see how they could use it in their own um, their own inspections um, and then we have another um, agreement that we've signed with IOM um, to look at using a prize in Hong Kong and so in this case when it's more substantial agreements the idea is that they could then own an instance that they would then manage after a say a year or two year period of us building their capacity to run it themselves. Fantastic. So we're open to collaboration. Okay, well, then whoever's uh, interested in collaborating, please do get in touch with Hannah. And okay, so you, uh, you've already got some great collaborations already, it seems, though. And um, yeah, IOM Hong Kong, uh, I guess you're working with uh, the Tara. Tara, yeah. So you're, I'm sure you're in good hands there. Definitely. Brilliant. So a lot of, lot of exciting things going on with a prize and an exciting future. Well, yeah. Hannah, thank you once again for, for being with us. I've really enjoyed this conversation and you know talking a bit more about tech which is something we we haven't yet done yet on the migration and diaspora podcast so thank you very much for sharing your experiences and i look forward to staying in touch thank you thanks for your time it's been great chatting thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the migration and diaspora podcast if you've enjoyed it you can check out the podcast website at loxanharley.com forward slash podcast there you can subscribe to the mailing list or get in touch if you want to be on the podcast. Be sure to follow the podcast via your favorite podcasting platform and leave a review if you can. Thanks again and see you next time.